Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Mike Berkey, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Doing great, Bill. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I am so, I'm so enthused to have you on the podcast. I, uh, I feel like this is going to be a wonderful opportunity to present Mormonism in a paradigm that, that I've never talked about before in a way that gives people, I think, an, an extra angle from which to, to base faith and to, to lead with faith and to stay in the church and, and to press ahead. And I'm just so grateful to have you on and wondered if you might start us off by just sharing a little bit about yourself so that people can get a feel for, uh, for who you are and, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure thing. I was raised in a Mormon family in eastern Washington, um, grew up active my whole life, kind of followed the standard model, the you know, the good boy, Mormon boy narrative of uh, go on a mission when I'm 19, get married when I'm 21, go to BYU. Uh, I do all these kinds of things. Um, but through the whole process, I've also always been plagued with doubt. Uh, about the truth claims of the church, but um, also just about whether or not there's even a God. Right, right. I mean, there is this idea that, uh, and I've got a brother-in-law who who grew up as a Latter-day Saint in and became an atheist uh, probably in his teenage years and has never looked back. And, uh, and I feel like your story is going to be a chance to kind of reframe this whole idea. I wondered, is, is there any experiences growing up in the church or any thoughts from how how your childhood was that uh, that impacted you? I mean, did you just have a traditional, you know, Latter-day Saint childhood, or were there things early on that were kind of throwing you for a loop even early in the church? Well, I would say it was very traditional, but one experience that may be worth mentioning when I was in high school, um, you know, growing up, I definitely grew up in this traditional sense of you need to have a testimony, you need to gain a testimony, um, and it's you know, very much Moroni 10, you need to go and pray to know whether these things are true. And I heard that again and again and again growing up at seminary, at youth conferences, at church. And uh, very often you talk about the sort of burning in the bosom that talks about in Doctrine and Covenants. You need to sort of have this experience to, you know, not live on borrowed life. But you need to get your own experience, right? And so I was 
definitely craved this experience growing up. And I, I read the Book of Mormon a couple of times uh, as I grew up. And always at the end, I would get to the end and be like, okay, I've read the whole thing, and now I'm going to say this prayer, and I'm going to get my answer, and then nothing. And uh, so this was this always caused me a lot of anxiety. I never really felt like if the model was broken. I always kind of felt like there's something wrong with me that I'm not getting the answer, that you know I'm doing something wrong, or maybe God's you know not pleased with me, or something, you know uh, that I'm not getting this answer. Um, but there was one experience that came, I think, not even in sort of uh, an answer to a prayer, but I counted it as kind of a confirmation of the, of the truth of the gospel. Uh, and this was when I was in high school. I was um, I had the previous Christmas been in a multi-state choir and we'd sung uh, you know, a lot of the kind of traditional Christmas songs. And I was listening to a recording of this and we were singing Joy to the World. And I was you know, listening to this and very much sort of in the, you know, in the moment, singing along with the radio in my car driving. And all of a sudden I sort of just kind of have this uh, vision of like second coming and like, you know, uh, Christ coming down and it's just very eventful impact. And, and I'm filled with tremendously powerful emotion thinking about this kind of a thing. Right. Um, and uh, so much so that like my, my body is like, I don't know, full of sensation, tingling all over. Uh, tingle is too, too weak a word for it. And I, and I'm like worried I'm going to like lose control of the car now. So anyway, but it's like this very strong experience. And for a long time after that, I kind of point to that moment as the moment that's, this is it. This is what everyone's talking about, the burning of the bosom. That's when I knew, uh, uh that, that the, you know, that the church was true and that, you know, God was real and all these kinds of things. And I, and, you know, and, I really felt this need to be able to perform a testimony and to have an event to point to that that that's when I knew. And ironically, that event didn't shore up my faith. It ended up actually putting a wedge uh, between me and my faith, I would say that, you know, I could I could very powerfully stand up in a testimony meeting and maybe share this experience or maybe just maybe not share the experience, but just say I, I know and then feel like, yeah, I've got something backing me up on that. You know? But truthfully, I it gave me something specific to also pin all of my doubts on as well, if that makes sense. And I'm always coming back to this experience. And, and because it because it's, you know, it's it, it almost became like a sign to me. And, and signs are always open to interpretation. Right. And so was that real? Was that just kind of me like feeling good about the music I'm listening to? You know what I mean? So I, which is it? And, and I realized I don't know that this ever becomes totally conscious, but there's a lot of anxiety that builds up around, okay, but okay, do I really know? And what, what exactly did I know there? You know, this doesn't necessarily mean the church is true, right? Maybe it means that I know that, that, you know, Christianity is, but perhaps the church isn't. And so, um, it, it kind of creates this whole, um, weird trap for my faith, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And, and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the method that Mormonism kind of sets up culturally, right? As you pointed out, we, we send the missionaries out and we teach this Moroni three or 10, three through five. And, and we talk about it all the time in our wards and in our stake meetings that this is how people get answers. And yet I, I talked to Terrell Givens last week and, and brother Givens and sister Givens pointed out that at one time Terrell was in a, uh, a high priest group and he even asked, he asked the group, he said, okay, how many of you guys have not had a spiritual confirmation of the gospel in a large chunk of the, the high priest in that room raised their hand, which, which seems so different from what our expectations are. And, and as you're pointing out too, this experience that you had, you know, 
I had something very similar when I prayed about the Book of Mormon, and, and I've gone back several times in my life and doubted that experience. If it wasn't for the fact that my wife was part of that experience, she was my girlfriend at the time, and if she hadn't experienced or been present as I was experiencing that that event, it would be very easy to go back and to doubt. And, and then just to add on that not everybody gets those answers as we're talking about it. And I can see how that would be... Um, that would be an event that for you would cause anxiety because it's such a huge wager, right? Either the church is the the most incredible thing on the earth or it is this giant fraud perpetrated by by a deceitful man. Um, well, and it's for me, go ahead. part of the problem too is that it's so open to interpretation. That was what really drove my anxiety about it, right? And Adam Miller makes this point in Rube Goldberg's Machines, uh, Atonement and Testimony, that look, every sign is mediated through an experience in this world and is therefore an open to interpretation. And if our testimony is based on a sign, it's that's not a that's not a strong foundation for our testimony. We need a, a testimony in order to be in order to be a, a good, solid, strong testimony has to be based on an unmediated unmediated experience with the atonement. And that's not what I was trying to base my testimony on. I was trying to base it on this sign. But sometimes that's how we talk about Ronai's promise or the burning in the bosom, that it has to be this sort of outward manifestation or some sort of physical sensation or something like this. Um, I certainly understand the anxiety that you're pointing to. As you point out, experiences are completely through our own filters and, and how we interpret those things. And it can it can be a lot messier than just simply oh i felt good about something so everything that that you know involves must be true and i often hear critics talk about this idea that uh, that you know they felt good when they listened to you know a rap song or they felt good when they watched lord of the rings or they and, and it's some of those same kinds of feelings and so all of a sudden it becomes this this really difficult thing to try and interpret and so i i recognize some of the things you're sharing there uh, you you served a mission right uh, so tell us about your mission. Where'd you go, and and what kind of experiences did you have there? So I went to Perth, Australia, Western Australia, and I, for the most part, loved my mission. I had a really good experience, and it, in mo- for the most part, was a very uh, typical uh, mission that uh, I think most members of the, the most. I don't know. Maybe maybe mine was a little bit more positive than than a lot of young men are having today. Um, I do hear a lot of people perhaps say that perhaps the mission wasn't the best experience for them. But for me, I really loved my mission. And uh, But I did go through a lot of doubt and kind of had my first faith crisis at the beginning of my mission. Um, the MTC was a little bit of a shock for me. Uh, when I when I went to the MTC and learned the first lesson, uh, and it's like, hey, the restoration, okay, I know this stuff. But then at the end, there's this pray to know doctrine. And it's the last principle of the first lesson and preach my gospel. And... Uh, of course, I've heard this before, but they're really hammering this hard in the NTC as they do, right? And I'm thinking, man, I I don't think I've ever had that experience as a response to a prayer about the Book of Mormon, and I've tried for it. Um, but so I think, okay, well, that's just because I wasn't reading the Book of Mormon seriously enough, and so I take on this project of I'm going to I'm going to really deeply, with my whole soul, read the Book of Mormon carefully and closely, and that turned out to be create all sorts of problems for me, actually, uh, because as I read the Book of Mormon very carefully and closely, I began to find all of the sort of intellectual problems that many people have found with the Book of Mormon. For me, uh, the biggest problem was KJB anachronisms in the text. So, for example, Nephi says, O wretched man that I am, and this is in 600 BCE, uh, 
long before Paul would, in Romans 7, write, a wretched man that I am. And I'm thinking, how this is this is too strange. There's no way that Nephi would have access, had access to Paul's writings or that Paul would have access, had access to Nephi's. Um, and there are you know hundreds of these kind of little snippet quotations of KJB post-600 BCE texts uh, littered all throughout the Book of Mormon. Um, and I'm, and I'm, and I, so I start keeping a list of these. And in fact, in the first about 12 weeks of my mission or so, I'm, I, I sort of make it a project now to find all of these that I can. I can find a list of about 100 or 150 of these. Uh, and I'm just keeping these as I go along. And it's really kind of wrecking my faith in the Book of Mormon. So I'm thinking there's no way this thing can be historical. How do I account for all these things? And the kind of crucial moment is when I reach Ether, uh, 13. I believe, Ether 14. And Ether is explaining to the Jaredites, uh, this is even before the Nephites have come. This is, you know, uh, and the Jaredites, remember, had uh, preceded Abraham, so they wouldn't have known anything about Jerusalem as far as I know. Um, they, you know, they left at the time of the Tower of Babel. Um, and, and, and so, Jared, uh, sorry, Ether is uh, telling them that, you know, in the last days, there's going to be a new Jerusalem. But and then he backs up and he says, OK, but hang on. I don't want you to be confused and think that the old Jerusalem that I told you that Lehi and his descendants would come from is the same thing as the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is going to be built on this continent, not on the old continent. And, and so don't mix those up. And yeah, OK, I'll, I'll grant you that the old Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. But that rebuilt old Jerusalem is not the new Jerusalem when I say new Jerusalem. And he's like trying to explain all these to like very wicked Jaredites who like, why do they care? And shouldn't we be just preaching repentance? This is a very sort of kind of strange, deep doctrine that is completely anachronistic to their people and culture when they wouldn't have even known what the old Jerusalem was. He had to explain that in the first place. And so there's no there's no risk that they would be confused about this old, new distinction. That, and so um, and, until he already introduced the concept of the old Jerusalem. Um, and, and so it's just this very strange kind of passage. And I'm thinking to myself, this would make so much more sense if, if I just uh, granted a Joseph Smith authorship of the Book of Mormon, that Joseph Smith is making uh, uh, an argument to the people in his own day, that people in his own day are thinking, oh, New Jerusalem, in the, in, when it talks about New Jerusalem in the Bible, that's talking about how old Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not it. It's going to be built here in the Americas. But that implies a Joseph Smith authorship. And uh, that's sort of the moment where I just kind of crumble and just like I just get so mad that I chuck the Book of Mormon across the room and and I just think, okay, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. Right. So so reading this, reading the Book of Mormon, as you come across these anachronisms, they obviously affect you deeply. And it's like, hey, I've been looking for an answer. I've done all I can. I've read the Book of Mormon seriously, and all I keep finding is problem after problem. And so you made this determination that you know you can't go forward. Uh, but what'd you do? Right. So I figured, so I was caught in this place. My companion doesn't know that I'm going through all this. I'm sort of making this list and reading the book on my own and I'm not getting along with my companion. Uh, and so I don't really feel I can turn to him with these kind of issues or, or to anyone else in the mission really. So I'm kind of dealing with this in isolation. And so it, that really heightens the anxiety uh, of all of this. But I'm also very far away from home. And so I feel like, so going home for a mission just feels like a very big move that I'm not ready to make yet. So while I'm feel very strongly that, that no, there's no way that that Book of Mormon could be true. I'm also not ready to make the decision to go home. And so I kind of don't tell anyone and I begin writing letters home. Uh, um, and one of my friends from home, uh, 
Joe Spencer actually. Um, he he writes me and and says, "Well, look, aren't you really?" Don't, aren't you really just entertaining an obsession with knowledge that you have to know that the Book of Mormon is true? Because you know, I'd written to this about about that, and that I really felt like I needed to know. I said, "Isn't this becoming for you a kind of idolatry? Uh, aren't you being and, and you're you're so convinced that it's not true? Isn't this isn't this so much pride on your part? Do you think that that I don't know about these kinds of things? I, I don't remember everything that he wrote me, but he he really uh, calls me to repentance in a very kind of uh, very strict kind of rebuking kind of a way, but he and I sort of have that relationship where he can do that. Um, um, you know, I, I, it's kind of very much a DNC 121 principle. I also know, you know, how much love he has for me as a friend that he can do that. And that, that makes me kind of step back and realize that, yeah, he's, he's right. I, I am very much obsessed with knowledge and I am entertaining a lot of pride. And so that causes me to distrust my own distrust. It's very similar to, in my mind, what um, President Uchtdorf said in conference a couple of years ago, doubt your own doubts. And so while I'm seriously doubting the Book of Mormon, Joe has also convinced me to doubt my own doubts very seriously as well. And so I'm kind of left in this limbo like area where I don't know what to believe, but I also don't want to go home. And, and so I stay on a mission and kind of gradually work things out and decide, well, I know the Book of Mormon is kind of crazy, but I'm just going to choose to believe it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you say that. And, and here's what the question that goes through my mind. If I'm serving my mission and my testimony of the Book of Mormon is an absolute struggle, and yet I've got to go out every day and challenge people to to put Moroni 10, 3 through 5 to the test, and I've got to bear witness of these things that I'm not sure of, and yet you say you had a great mission. I'm I'm curious how you reconciled that. How did you how did you move through those things and still have a positive experience? Well, okay, so two things. First of all, I was already at this point very taken with the Terrell Gibbons idea that belief can be a choice, that there's enough room on both sides of the issue to make the, the truth of the matter uncertain. You can choose what to believe. And so I think to myself, well, yeah, I, I do have some serious doubts, but I'm going to there nevertheless choose to believe the Book of Mormon is true. So that's point number one. But point number two is, while I have serious doubts about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, I have no doubt about what I would now call the truth of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and what I mean by that is like redeeming truth, the the things in the the actual things in the Book of Mormon themselves that speak to my soul. And I have no doubt about that at this point. I've encountered many truths in the Book of Mormon. And so I can I can testify of those and testify that the Book of Mormon is true in that kind of what I feel is more important sense than just merely being historical, if that makes sense. Right, yeah, having a testimony of the fruits of the gospel rather than the historical facts. Right, and I think that honestly that we – this is what Moroni 10 – and this is how I came to interpret Moroni 10 on my mission as well. Um, you ask how would I – um, sort of convey the scripture when I tend to investigators in the way that I always did was not to say truth there is the his- historicity of the Book of Mormon, but to always say by the power of the Holy Ghost you may know the truths of it. This kind of you, uh, you know the, the redeeming truth that is in it. You can come to know this by the power of the Holy Ghost if you read it and you pray. And and so I don't really have a conflict with teaching that message. Yeah, and that almost turns Moroni 10 back into kind of an Alma 32 paradigm where one is taking the the different principles and applying them one by one and testing them and, and gaining a, a testimony of faith or a testimony of repentance or a testimony of charity. And, and those things, I think, are universal 
And I think they're true no matter what walk of life you're in. And so I think that's a good way to do it. But you run into another problem, and it's a, and it's a very similar problem that I ran into. Uh, in your article, you talk about this meeting of the century. And I, and I have to chuckle because, uh, and, and I'll share with you after you share your story, I'll share with you how I kind of saw this in the same light. But uh, tell us about the meeting of the century. Okay, yeah. So moving on to this is now several years after my mission. This was actually only one year ago just over a year ago, last June, and it's announced that there's going to be this hastening the work broadcast from the general church uh, to a, a worldwide church audience, and everyone's encouraged to go to their stake centers and, and watch this um, a couple weeks ahead of time. And there is a, a brother, I, I, forget, I think maybe Lee Donaldson was his name, was uh, somewhere here back east, giving a fireside promoting this uh, this broadcast um, a couple weeks ahead of time, and in it he makes a couple comments like it's one of those things that you're gonna want to say I was there, and he he says that he heard from Elder Nelson, and he cites Elder Nelson for this. He says Elder Nelson says it will be the meeting of the century, and that missionary work would change for the rest of the dispensation, and so there's a lot of buildup. Um, and then finally, um, Lee Donaldson or Elder Nelson, I'm not sure who, I think it was probably Donaldson that says, if you want to know, and this is, for me was a crucial line, if you want to know if the heavens are open, show up. And, and for me, this, this was a, this caught my attention, uh, because I had never really resolved my doubt. I, I kept, I'd held on to a lot of doubt for my mission. I was just also doubting my doubts and doing this choose to believe thing, but I had a whole bundle of like, belief and doubt that I'm just kind of still wrestling with this. And I think, well, yeah, I definitely want to know if the heavens are open, so uh, I'll definitely listen in. And, you know, the big change, missionaries are going to use Facebook now. And I'm thinking, right. wow, this is those are the most closed heavens I've ever seen in my life. And, and this is how I feel about it in, uh, as I'm watching this and as I reflect on it in the days after. Yeah, very much like you I had heard the the same rumors. Of course, you maybe heard them firsthand, but I heard them through the discussion boards and stuff online, where people were saying that a member of the seventy was was sharing, you know, essentially inside information that this was going to be this giant meeting. And I got the same quote from Elder Nelson that this was going to be the meeting where one would know that the church was led by God. And just like you, you know, here I am. I'm I'm the guy in my ward with my ears to the ground. Members of my ward, especially in leadership, are aware that, that I've had conversations with, with church leaders and with people in public affairs of the church and others, uh, who have inside information. And so I'm going back to them. I'm saying, Hey guys, I'm being told that this is going to be this super important meeting and this is going to change the dynamics of how we operate in the church. And, and I essentially get everybody pumped up about this meeting. And like you, as the meeting is actually going on, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, they're never ever going to let me persuade them to do anything ever again. And, uh, like you, you know, here they are talking about missionaries using Facebook and getting iPads. And, and my thought is, wow, this, this is the biggest thing in the last, you know, hundred years. And I'm thinking this is, this is not that big of a deal. This would be a natural transition in the world we live in. And then to top it off, you know, I don't, we're, you know, we're at least a year later, is a year and a half later, something like that. Yeah. Do you know offhand when the, when the actual meeting was? I mean, was it, it was, a year and a half ago? It was ago? June 2013. So, okay. almost a year and a half. So, in that year, the missionaries in my ward still aren't using those things. And I don't know if they're using them where you're at. So, it's almost like they make this giant announcement. They kind of, and I don't want to be rude to the church, but they kind of oversell it as this giant thing. And, 
And not only is it not that big of a deal, they haven't even implemented it yet. So any kind of excitement that was built up for that change has kind of died off by now. Sure. Well, and, and that's, and I, I sympathize with what you're saying. And a, a couple of things. First of all, I feel like this idea that it would be the meeting of the century, right? So now kind of post fate, this, this, as we're going to talk about, no doubt, in a, in a minute, but this, this triggers a, a much more severe faith crisis for me. But I'm kind of on the other side of that faith crisis now. So I'm talking on the other side of that now. When I say that I feel like that gives us members a mandate to make it the meeting of the century, to, to still go back and see what is taught in that, in that, in that, uh, broadcast and truly implement it into our missionary work. Uh, I think it can be the meaning of a century, but I think that it's partly our task to make it so. No, and I hear that. And, uh, and so you, you have this, you know, at the moment, it's this essentially a horrible experience. It is thrusting you into the, the depths of, uh, of a faith crisis where you essentially lose kind of a complete belief in God. And, uh, and maybe tell us, you know, kind of what that felt like and what you were thinking, but then also share with us how you move forward in the sense of telling those around you kind of what you were thinking, what you were feeling. Yeah. Well, how, how did it feel? I mean, to be honest, it was a real relief to finally, like, cause it, it resolves a lot of tension I've been feeling to, to finally sort of fess up to the fact that, you know, I don't believe in God and I actually haven't for a long time to finally sort of come to terms with that. It, 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 it brings a lot of relief to me. Um, but, but yeah, part of, and, it, and it's kind of strange, you know, what people have asked, you know, okay, why this of all things to, to cause you to not believe in God? It seems a very strange thing. And I'm not totally sure why, but you know, I saw a lot of desperation uh, on the part of, on the part of um, some members uh, to, to affirm, you know, that this is dramatic revelatory news and this is, that's, that's what God is. And, I, and it opens my eyes to realize, oh, when people say God, they, this is, this is a, a term that people use kind of for purposes that may not be entirely unselfish, if that makes sense, if that makes sense. That I, and I come to sort of see the, the, the idea of God as something, as an idea that is always one of use, that someone's going to try to, you know, affirm that this church has authority and validity, but maybe, maybe not that. Maybe someone else uses God to affirm that, that their sort of choices in life have validity or that they can, you know, be mean to, you know, you know, judge someone else or I, I don't know. It's all sorts of reasons, but I come to see that is there, is there ever actually a time that we talk about God when we actually are talking about something other than what we feel that we, you know, want to use for ourselves? And so this is this is sort of why I think I come to doubt God. But the only person I really talk to, you ask who who am I talking to, and and I talk to my wife. And at this point, I'm married and have uh, two two kids. Um, and I talk to my wife, and I talk to Joe Spencer again um, because he and I still are still good friends. And uh, and I begin to formulate, you know, um, and I and I come out to my wife and I say uh, before I talk to Joe comes to the first one I talk to and I say, you know, what if I were to leave the church? And she says, oh, wow, really? Like this was not on her radar. She didn't really understand how much tension I had um, surrounding you know, faith and doubt. And uh, but she says, OK, OK, OK. Um, and she says, OK, well, we can deal with that and we can we can move forward and we can have, you know, we can have still have a, a good family. And um, and I I'm fully committed to raising our kids in the church still. And I'm. Uh, and you know, helping her with that while they're young and taking them to church and these kinds of things. Um, 
and but uh, and and she, and she just shows a lot of respect and says, you know, whatever you decide, I I will respect you, whatever you decide, and um, and so I receive a lot of support for how I'm feeling and what I'm thinking on her end. Um, have Have you ever thought about what what your what would have happened had she reacted? You know, I go online. And in trying to help people who are struggling, I, I have lots of conversations and, and some of those have the exact opposite reaction where the spouse is just frustrated and essentially just kind of shuns the one who's lost faith and, and makes it a matter of kind of feeling like they have to defend the church or choose to, to kind of love and empathize with their spouse. They don't really understand that they can do both. You ever think about what would have happened had she, had she had a, a visceral reaction? I haven't thought about that and I, that, obviously, that would have been very hard. I we we kind of don't have that kind of relationship with each other that that would sort of make sense for her to do that. Um, it, it seems odd to say. I mean, obviously, we're, we're very close. I mean, that obviously we're we're, we're married, but, but um, it, it just it seems very strange to me that to think about her. So I've never I've never thought about that. But um, yeah, my my heart goes out to those who whose spouses do respond that way because I don't I don't know how I would respond to that. I don't think I would respond very well to not being accepted for something I can't help, you know, my belief. Right. No, and I, I'm glad you said it that way. I, I, I know in, in many of these instances, the, the person struggling is fretting the whole idea of telling their spouse or their parent uh, or their child or their sibling about it. It's almost like they, they have this guess. And I was kind of in this boat. I was kind of fearful of what the reaction would be, but it sounds like you guys have got a relationship that's solid in the way that you really never feared that her reaction would even, there would be any chance that she would react that way. And so um, I just appreciate, I guess, say thanks to her and, and to let her know uh, how much uh, I and others appreciate people in the church who, who have that ability to empathize and understand and not, not necessarily overreact in those big moments. And uh, so anyway, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, uh, so you have this, this meeting of the century, you, you, lose your faith over it and essentially just let go of any last little strings of trying to hold on to a belief in God. And, and I was surprised to hear you say that it was, it was essentially a, you let go of all the anxiety, all the tension is gone because of it. But obviously you had dealt with all of that through your mission and even before that up to this point. And, and so like you say, this was just a moment to kind of just let go. There was no, no more reason to hold on. And so here you are at that moment you're you're an atheist. You don't you don't believe in God. You don't have a, a belief in a supreme being. And yet, for some reason, I've got you on the podcast today, and my focus is always to lead with faith. So we have to we have to figure out where you go from there. And uh, and what I found incredibly neat about your article, and you start off by talking about Terrell Givens and saying you actually disagree with Terrell Givens. Belief is not a choice. Tell us what you mean by that, and then share with us where you went from there. Right. Yeah, I, I do. I, I don't think belief that, I don't think belief is something I can choose or unchoose. I think it's something I find myself in the middle of. That's the way that Jacob Baker puts it in his BCC post, a common consent, sorry. Um, and that, that is how I experience my disbelief in God. This is just how the world is kind of given to me. Um, and I sort of can't deny that, that, you know, I experience the world this way. Um, but, I, but that doesn't, that doesn't then follow that I therefore have to leave the church. Uh, and this is what I sort of come to realize in the, in the next, you know, few weeks after sort of talking to my wife about this and talking to Joe about this, that 
okay, so you don't believe, but what is this, what does this actually mean, this belief? And I come to sort of decide that, uh, sort of realize, I guess, that belief is, is, uh, what I would call an, an affect. That it's, um, yeah, affect as a noun, as a sort of, uh, irrational, um, sort of, uh, emotion almost, I suppose, um, that, that I can't help but have. But it's not something that is evidence for or against the existence of God. It's just evidence that I grew up in a secular age, really. You know, if I would have grown up in 13th century France, then I, there's no way that I would have been able to unchoose belief in Christ. Um, but because I grew up, you know, in 21st century America, I've been inculcated with a, uh, with a disbelief that I cannot help. And to me, that is kind of a, just a brute fact. And so you decide to move forward. Somehow you take this, this faith that you're trying to apply to your life and you relate it to some mathematical ideas. And I think this is genius in, in the way that you do this because I think this becomes very applicable to, to each of us. And so maybe just share with us, Mike, how do you take faith and relate it into the subject of mathematics? Sure. Sure, Bill. And, to make sure that this is clear, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the blog post that I wrote, if that's all right. Absolutely. So I say, mathematical systems are built on a handful of what are called axioms. That is, unproved assumptions that provide the starting point for reasoning. Most mathematical truths, for example, 2 plus 2 make 4, are not axioms, but the logically implied results of the founding axioms. A common misunderstanding is the idea that axioms must be self-evident. While many axioms happen to be self-evident, for example, x equals x is an axiom that is self-evident, some aren't. A statement becomes an axiom simply by our arbitrarily choosing it as such. No proof or self-evidence is required. For illustration, let's consider the continuum hypothesis. If you tried enumerating all the counting numbers, 1, 2, 3, and so forth, you would never, of course, finish because the set of counting numbers is infinite. The set of real numbers, which includes the counting numbers and other things like the square root of 2, isn't just infinite. It's infinitely larger than the already infinitely large set of counting numbers. There are bigger infinities still. The continuum hypothesis speculates that while there are many bigger infinities than the real numbers, there is none smaller except the counting numbers. There's nothing between the two. What's interesting is mathematicians have discovered that the continuum hypothesis is both impossible to prove and to disprove, given our current axioms. The consequence, and what proves so relevant to my posture within Mormonism, is that we are left with a pure choice, with no compelling reason to declare the continuum hypothesis true or false. The question is what mathematicians call undecidable. But it is precisely this undecidability that allows us to make a pure, insupportable, axiomatic decision. The continuum hypothesis will be true or won't be as we choose, and neither choice will be inconsistent with current axioms. At present, the, math the mathematics community is still split on this decision. That is, they're still trying to decide whether to, um, whether to make the continuum hypothesis true or not. And maybe then to transfer this over, so there's this, essentially, you could defend it from both ends, and there's just no way to get at it to really know the absolute, you know, whether the continuum hypothesis works or or doesn't work. There's no way to prove it true or untrue. And so maybe taking this back into your own faith, how does this apply? How do you take this continuum hypothesis, and it becomes kind of the background paradigm for how you set up your faith? 
Right. So what I'm what I'm really trying to do here is is make a similar kind of gesture that mathematicians are making about the continuum hypothesis. That okay, if you look at if you look at the evidence for and against the existence of God, there really isn't much. Um, not much that's really satisfying. Uh, and so that leaves me room to just make a decision about is God there or is he not there? And okay, one of one of the bits of evidence maybe that I don't believe, but as we've discussed earlier in the podcast. That's not really very good proof. You know, that's not good evidence. It just shows the time and place that I grew up in, uh, shows the way I've been inculcated. Okay, so what other evidence is there? There really isn't much. Okay, so that leaves me room just to assume axiomatically, arbitrarily, uh, even indefensibly, because axioms are not, are indefensible. Um, and so, and, and this is, this is what I decide to do. Uh, I decide to formally, axiomatically affirm that there is a God. Right. And so you've essentially, in spite of the fact that you, as an individual person, in your mind, see things from an atheist perspective, you see no, you have no belief in God within your, within the, your mind and how you reason things out, and yet you have, in spite of that, you've chosen to affirm God and to exercise faith. Absolutely. And, and to me, that's, that's, so much closer, this may sound silly, but it's so much closer to what I would call reality than where most church members are. So, so most church members, and again, I, I don't doubt for a moment that there are some people who may indeed know that the gospel is true, but I think most church members get up on testimony meeting and they use the words I know, and, and sometimes I'll even hear the, the youth say with every fiber of my being. And in reality, they probably, you know, the majority of them again, I'm not speaking across the board, but the majority of them probably don't know but they feel it. They, they, they're going on a hunch. They've had some experience that's caused them to lean that way. They, they know because they feel something. And so in reality, they don't really know, but they're affirming their faith based on the experiences they've had. And yet you've not had those experiences. And in your mind, it seems reasonable and likely that there's no God. And yet in spite of that, you've chosen to be faithful. So in that context, what does faith mean to you? I mean, what what does the word? If I say, you know, if I say Mike Berkey has faith, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it, that's an interesting question. And and to be clear, I I think I have had the experiences that many members have had faith affirming. Uh, I think I've had many faith affirming and very powerful spiritual experiences, but it's difficult for me to in, to interpret those in the same way that members do. Um, and so, but in terms of what does faith mean to me? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a difficult question, but for the moment, I'm just going to say it's a decision on the undecidable. It's, I, and by undecidable, undecidable, what I really mean is there is nothing compelling enough to decide for me whether or not there's a, a, a God there or not, whether or not this, you know, the this gospel is true or not. Um, there's no way for me to really know. And so I have to make a decision kind of in the dark without knowing, um, something that is, sort of indefensible in that way. And, right. And that gesture for me is faith. Yeah, yeah. And and you talk about you kind of talk about this idea that your disbelief is a gift. And and again I'll I'll mention the givens. Terrell and Fiona love DNC section forty six and and you seem to be pulling from that same idea that dis you know that disbelief is a gift. Um maybe just share some thoughts on that. Yeah, so this is where I kind of switch modes a little bit. Earlier there's kind of two different ways to see what I'm doing. And one is through a kind of disbelieving lens and one is through kind of a believing lens. And this is where I, I shift to my believing lens. Not that I'm believing, but my sort of, I guess, faithful lens, if you want to call it that. 
and, and say that God has given me to disbelieve in him. For whatever reason, whatever God's reasons are, I don't know what they are, but God has chosen to make me that way. God has chosen to make me an atheist and see how, what, what will I do? How will I act in light of that gift? Uh, and, and you're right. I, I do turn to DNC 46 to sort of support this, to, to see this. Uh, DNC 46, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware, says to, to many is given to know. Uh, I believe that, um, I think it says something to know that Christ is the, you know, is the redeemer or something along those lines that died for them on the cross. Uh, and others, it is given to believe on their words, right? Um, but those two verses don't, uh, I, I don't think exhaustively, uh, um, encompass all of humanity. I think to some people, they will be given neither knowledge nor even belief. They'll, they'll, some people are given disbelief. And certainly I was. Certainly this is the way the world is given to me, as I've said before, that it just seems obvious to me that there's no God. It just appears to me that way. And I, I can't, I can't look at the, the world other than that. I just, I can't will myself out of that disbelief. Um, but, uh, but the interesting thing is that God really could have given me that sort of way of being in the world. And what I say is that God did give me that way of being in the, in the world. And it's strange. It's counterintuitive, but it's not stranger than a lot of things God has done, actually. Right. I mean, you have members of the church who are aware of the problems. They're aware of the difficult issues. They're aware of the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. They're, they're aware of, you know, all of the, the troublesome issues that someone can get caught up on. And yet they, they will absolutely say, look, I, I, my testimony is still as solid as possible. And so I think your position is one of humility, which is to say, look, there are other people who see the exact same things I do and they come to this different conclusion. So why, why does my truth Trump absolute truth. Why, why do I have the right to enforce my truth as being the absolute end all be all of truth? Does that make sense? I suppose, but, but, uh, this is a really important point. My truth is Mormonism. My truth is God's love. This is my truth. Uh, and, and truth, as I, as I sort of argued earlier in the podcast, truth is something that is constructed. It's something that is, is built beginning with axioms. And my founding axioms are God is. God has given me to disbelieve in him. God has also given me the scriptures. God has given me Mormonism. And these are some sort of my founding axioms. And, and from that, I sort of, this, this, and so these are my foundational truths. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that I have a sort of different truth. I, I, those are my truths, but I, I'm conceiving of truth as something that's built, not just inherently is. Right. No, and I get that. And I'm not trying to, to put words in your mouth. I guess I'm trying to say it this way, maybe that, in spite of the the decision that you've made to absolutely lead with faith and to affirm the church's truthfulness and the gospel's truthfulness, setting that aside, your mind would prefer to lean the other way, right? I mean, if you just said, okay, set all of my my decisions aside, just my intellect would prefer to go a different direction. You're right. That's correct. And But what you've decided, essentially, is that why does my intellect get to trump others who know the same information and have made a completely different decision? And I see that as very humbling that, that essentially you've, you've allowed yourself to recognize that you're not the only guy in the room who's got it figured out, but that there are others who, who see these same ideas and, and pieces of information and historical experiences and, and they're, you know, in their mind, in their intellect saying, yeah, the church is true. And you're not discrediting that. You're saying, hey, 
I'm, I'm choosing to go down that exact same path, even though my intellect would prefer to make a different decision. And I love how in DNC 46, you know, you pointed this out, and I think this is a great observation. I think it's a, a huge thing you've picked up on. It would be very easy to make the assumption that in verses 13 and 14, it's talking about, as you point out, all humanity. But, but as you say, that's not the case. You know, to some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. To others, it is given to believe on their words that they may, that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. And, and to essentially look at the words to some and to others, and those two added together don't necessarily have to equal 100% of all people, that God, in turn, there may be a whole other segment who get neither verse 13 or verse 14 applied to them. And, and I find that, I find that very freeing that, as you point out, disbelief may indeed be a gift of the spirit that, that for some they know they have a, they have a surety or a certainty that the gospel is true. For others, they're simply given the ability to lean on the words of those who know and that it's absolutely possible that to even another group, it is given to not have any, uh, leniency or, or I shouldn't say leniency, any tendency to believe, and yet with that gift, you can still use your agency and choose to go down a faithful path anyway. I I just find that very uh, empowering, and and really just want to give you, I guess, props for for what would have been a very easy decision in some ways. And again, I know it won't, wouldn't be in others, but in some ways to simply walk away, and yet you've chosen to say, "Look, God's God's given me this. I'm going to go ahead and move forward and walk the the path of faith." I. I just want to say I, I just appreciate your strength to do that. Well, thanks, Bill. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. You uh, you finish off the article with some thoughts, and, and I don't know if these are my words or yours. Feel free to, to step in. But what I wrote down here, and I know that when I first wrote this down and shared with you kind of an outline of what I wanted to talk about with you, you said, hey, you know, this is the one thing I would change is not not to write it this way but but this other way. And so here's here's what I've got. It says, whether it's true or not, is important, but whether or not I know it is true or not has nothing to do with it. Help me understand that. Right, right. So at the, at, yeah, at the end of at the end of my article, I do. I, this is this is what I say is this is my testimony. Don't worry about whether or not I I know it's true. That's got nothing to do with it. What matters is that God is true. He loves us and He will lead us to life if we let Him. Right. So what I'm what I'm I'm kind of coming into this. I, I'm I'm sort of making a commentary on this this. Uh, long debate that we've been having about okay, when you bear your testimony, do you have to say I know it's true? And I think it's a good thing to say if you do know that it's true. I clearly don't know that it's true, but for me that doesn't matter. Uh, for me, um, it's just it's true, and it's more important to say that it's true and to point at the truth itself rather than to point at myself and point at my knowledge of it. And I, I feel like it can be. I feel like there's a danger of, of vanity in and saying, I know this is true, because you're not actually pointing at the truth. You're pointing at yourself and your own knowledge of it. And I think it's, it can, it can just be so much better, even, even, um, perhaps for those who believe or, or know who have those gifts. And, and I, I, you know, those are true gifts. I think that it can be liberating of the truth itself just to state it as truth rather than, um, tacking on, I know it's true. I know it with every fiber of my being. And, and these kind of statements can call attention to ourselves rather than calling attention to the truths themselves. Right. And, and I hope that as people are listening to this podcast, that, that I know that there are some who listen to this who have either left the church or who are on the very, f- you know, fence of doing so. 
and I hope that they can take a step back. And I, and I think what you're saying, if, if we capture kind of the gist of it, is that whether you know the church to be true or not doesn't actually impact whether the church is actually true or not. That in a sense, you've come to a, your own decision and others, again, have come to different decisions or different conclusions based on seeing that same information and there's no way that you can know all information and there's no way that somebody else can know all information. So whether God actually exists or not is completely irrelevant to whether you or I know if he exists or not. Is that, am I saying that right? It's irrelevant to whether we decide that he does, right? Um, it, it, yeah, I, I think that you're, I think you're definitely on the right, definitely saying the right and, thing. And, and then in a sense, what's more important than whether I can intellectually reconcile a a knowledge of God being real or not is what's more important is the ability to to go forward and lead a faithful life. Well, and you know, you talk about faith, and maybe this is a something that's worth bringing up. Alma thirty two. Um, Alma says after you know after he says uh, you know he invites us to the experiment upon the word, and we plant the seed, and then the seed begins to swell, right? And then he has this really interesting line that I think is crucial. It says, and then you must need say that the word is good. And this is the, this is the crucial distinction that, that I want to make, uh, for, for people who find it so counterintuitive that I could somehow disbelieve in God and yet be doing what I'm doing. And this is, this is really what I want to point to is saying that the word is good is what really matters. And that's what faith is, is, is this saying, this confession of faith is, is really what's crucial. Not some sort of epistemological, uh, knowledge, uh, or access to knowledge, um, some sort of, uh, logical deduction or, um, that I had this experience and therefore I know that it's true. It's better just to say and confess that it is true. And I think this is really what's at, at the heart of, of, of faith. Awesome. Awesome. Mike Berkey, a true believing atheist Mormon. That is going to be a strange phrase for listeners to wrap their head around. I have uh, I've appreciated having you on today and uh, just grateful for the chance to provide listeners with one more way, one more paradigm, one more framework where depending on where they're at would be useful in, in kind of adopting or adapting to so that you can lead with faith. Mike Berkey, thank you so much for being on Mormon Discussion and, and wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you for having me, Bill. It's been a pleasure. the dead to life He's the one who fed the hungry and who gave the blind their sight He's the one who walked on water Then he brought them safe to shore And whenever you may need him He's the one you're looking for So let him in will take away your pain When you feel His love you'll never be the same Come on to Christ Come on to Him And by His grace be made holy again He's calling
can change your willing heart. Come on to Christ. Come on to Him, and by His grace be made holy again. He's calling your name. Holy again, He's calling your name.